Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. Hello there, Crazy Diamonds. Welcome back to Cycling in Alignment episode number 100 and something. It's been a bit of a break, a little bit of a hiatus from podcast time. I apologize for that. Had some things to do. I went to the Sea Otter event in the spring of 2023, raced my mountain bike for about 100 kilometers. It was quite an adventure. Did some things, learned some stuff, met some people, did a cool pre-ride of the race course with Lachlan Morton and Alex Howes. We met at the Pock trailer in the expo, and that was a good time. Also did some education with Team EF coaching there, taught some people a few things, hopefully dropped some nuggets, met some cool riders along the way. It was a good adventure. Also managed to get myself a sunburn and found a really amazing steak restaurant next to the hotel. Enjoyed my time in California. And then I came back and immediately jumped into a four-day live dissection class. That's an anatomy class where we dissected cadavers. And by live, I don't mean living. They weren't living people. They were deceased people. But it was in person. And the cadavers were untreated. So this was a powerful experience for me. It was an opportunity to learn probably four months of anatomy in about four days. Real world, hands-on. It's not a pro section, which is where someone else does the work and you get to observe. It was a dissection where you are actually doing the work yourself. And I'll say it was quite intense. Uh, An opportunity to learn a lot and also confront the very strong dichotomy between the way a body moves and looks when life force inhabits it, when a soul inhabits it, and after that point. A lot of interesting realizations came to me during this class. 
So I really enjoyed it. Uh, found time to move very quickly, which is a good sign that I was very involved in what I was doing. Learned a lot. Probably will be doing more of that in the future. And of course, I was thinking all the time about this next episode, the continuation of the cliffhanger of the most important podcast I've ever done. That was dramatic silence I left after that. I was going to make some noises or imitate a drum or something, but I figured silence would just do a better job. So today's episode will be, I think, two of three. There might be four. We'll see how the next one develops. But this will be number two, and I'm going to title it, Which Way Do We Spiral? And in the past, I've thought a lot about this concept in terms of hip drop. Steve Hogg refers to it as right side bias. And when we look at a rider, especially in the posterior view, that is imagining you are on someone's wheel, if you see one hip, we'll say dropping down more than the other, this is the essence of the problem, at least from a visual perspective, from our human visual perspective, which is when we follow someone's wheel, that's what we see. And that's what led to the concept or the title hip drop, because it looks like one hip is dropping. Very simplistic, right? But the more I think about this, pattern of movement, the more really what I see is a spiral. And I see a spiral when looking at a human being from the top down. So imagine that you are a drone or a bumblebee, and you're about 12 feet in the air off the ground. I prefer bumblebee to drone or hummingbird. That's maybe the best example because hummingbirds can just hover in one place. So Let's be a hummingbird and you're about 12 feet standing or flying, hovering over a human. And the human is standing there and you look down at this human being and what you'd see is the top of their head, the crown of their head and their shoulders. And that would about be it. Maybe some of their chest, maybe some of their feet, right? If their posture is really good, that'd be about all you'd see. If their posture is not so good, you'd see other parts like the upper part of their spine or maybe the, the pelvis. Or maybe you'd see some rotations between the pelvis and the shoulders. But we're going to use uh, an example of someone who's got good posture. So what you see really is the top of the shoulders and the crown of the head and the tips of the feet, the toes. That's about it. And when we have a spiral pattern viewing from this angle, this hummingbird cam, what we'd see is one shoulder simply further forward than the other. And likewise, the hip would also be further forward. Now, this is a, a simplified, idealized explanation. So there can be infinite variation within this model, within this archetype, we'll say. So it could be a situation in some cases where one hip is further forward and the same shoulder is actually twisted back from the neutral or center line. That would be pretty unusual, but it's definitely possible. We also have other anomalies like scoliosis that could exist, right? We have things like bony or osseous discrepancies, such as a leg length discrepancy, an osseous leg length discrepancy, meaning there's actually a bone length differential 
which is common in very small amounts, but not very common in large amounts, meaning more than about three millimeters. So when we look down from our hummingbird cam and we see this human being standing and we notice this pattern of from a perfect alignment, that is an alignment where if we draw a line through the nose that passed in the sagittal plane towards the back of the head. So from this hummingbird view, imagine you drew a line from the person's nose to the back of their head. That's the simplest way I can think to explain it. And then we draw a line perpendicular to that 90 degree angle that goes from one ear to the other. And we're using the head as the reference, the starting point. And then we compare the alignment of the shoulders to the line that passes through the ears or what we can call the ear line for simplicity. And then we also compare a line that goes through the hips, the center of the hips to the ear line. What pattern of twist or spiral do we notice? Is the right shoulder forward of the left shoulder relative to the ear line? Is the right hip forward to the left hip relative to the ear line? And are the shoulders and hips in parallel? And this would be our most common archetype, exactly what I described. The right shoulder and right hip are forward. So when we then assume a cycling position, that is we bend at the hip, what do we find? The right shoulder is closer to the right hood or handlebar, and the right hip is closer to the right hood. And in the process of this rotation, the right hip will also be closer to the front hub. It doesn't just drop or move, we'll say, straight towards the hub, uh, excuse me, it doesn't just move straight towards the handlebar, it also moves towards the hub because the body's at an angle of whatever your torso angle is, 20 degrees, 30 degrees, 40 degrees, somewhere in there normally from horizontal. And so when the hip rotates forward, it doesn't just rotate horizontally forward because you are hinged forward at the hip. It also rotates down towards the front hub. That is your pattern of rotation. So again, we can kind of consider what the specific outcomes are for any individual in this pattern. That is, does the left hip also rotate back or is the rope is the left hip in what we would consider to be neutral relative to our ear line in the cycling position. And only the right hip is dropped forward. Only the right hip shoulder is dropped forward. The other characteristics of this pattern are that when we rotate this right side of the body, the torso effectively writes, uh, rotates forward to the right, we tend to ride with more weight on the right arm and hand. And this can frequently cause some sort of consequence. It can mean that the right side shoulder gets fatigued more easily. It can mean that there are signs of tingling or numbness in the right hand before there are in the left. Sometimes they both show up, but sometimes it's more one than the other. It can also commonly mean that the left lumbar musculature, specifically the quadratus lumborum and uh, spinal erector muscles are hypertonic. That is to say they are a little bit bigger and more well-developed than the left, than the 
right side muscles. Hopefully I said that correctly. I'm going to repeat that because I may have got my sides mixed up. The left side quadratus lumborum and spinal erectors are hypertonic more so than the right side. This is our, our characteristic archetype way of thinking about this rotation, this spiral that happens in the human bodies. And one really important concept that I want to outline is that all humans tend to spiral. All human bodies express themselves in spiral patterns. This is just part of being a human. We are not symmetrical creatures. If you think that you're a symmetrical creature, you are fooling yourself. You are living in a fantasy land. It's not the way humans work. We have a liver on one side of our torso. We have more lobes of lung on one side than the other. That's just a few of the asymmetries that exist. We also have asymmetrical movement patterns and patterns in handedness. I was recently reading an article on bbc.com about the origin of handedness and how some scientists believe that it really began when we went from quadruped to biped. And probably because we started using our hands to do more manually dexterous things. So it's a pretty fascinating topic. Also, don't think for a moment that handedness correlates with footedness or eye dominance or even the dominance of which side you chew your food on more. These things can zigzag all over the place. It doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of people who are all righties up and down straight across the board. There are, but there's not necessarily a common pattern there. So what do we do about this problem? You are wondering what is going on because you're just trying to ride your bike and You've either got pain or discomfort that's distracting you from enjoying your beloved activity of cycling. And this is frustrating, I know. I've dealt with it in my own career in various forms. So let's unpack some more practical advice on how we can start to tackle this. As I mentioned in my previous podcast, um, a lot of clients come to me and they imagine that they can fix this by me doing a bike fit on them, performing a bicycle fit on them. And they're hoping that by tweaking a cleat or lowering the saddle or raising the saddle or changing the stem length that we're gonna fix things. And this is almost never the outcome. Uh, usually there's a, some part of bike fit that will contribute to these asymmetries or spin them up. And there are definitely aspects of cycling that can upregulate or spin up asymmetries or spiral patterns but most of it is in you. And fundamentally, as I was saying, since all humans do tend to work in spirals, we tend to express our movement in spirals. We have to think about or consider the fact that really the, the friction in this relationship comes from simply the fact that we are trying to relate to what is fundamentally a symmetrical device. Or weirdly, bicycles are actually well, most of the time we'll say they're symmetrical. That's assuming they're built correctly. I mean, you hear stories about how people put a 165 crank on one side and a 175 on the other side by accident. Mechanics will do this or, or people will do it. So that those moments aside, and there are bikes that are built oddly and you know, the bottom brackets aren't quite straight, et cetera. And I 
occasionally cranks get put on and installed incorrectly. And so you have weird things that happen or somebody grabs two different pedal axle lengths. All these outcomes can happen, but assuming all that is dialed or within a margin to where we don't care, bicycles are very symmetrical machines. However, they're only symmetrical in certain planes and in certain ways. That is, they hold our feet symmetrical in very specific movement patterns, but they allow movement only in other planes. That is, if you're in a pedal system that doesn't have fixed cleats, you can move your heel in towards the crank or out away from the crank. And assuming your cleats are in good condition, you cannot rock your foot in the frontal plane that is varus or valgus, or to say you cannot evert or invert your foot, assuming again that the cleats and pedals are in good shape nor should you be able to. In my opinion, that tends to really mess with a person's nervous system when their cleats are really smoked or when there's a lot of play in the pedal that shouldn't be there. That is, you can rock your foot, we'll say left to right, which is a very crude way to say it. Uh, another way to say it is, if you were to push your big toe down towards the pedal axle, and you could actually do that, you could actually rotate the foot down that way, or push your pinky toe down towards the pedal axle. So imagine pushing the first toe down and then the pinky toe down and rocking the foot back and forth in that plane. That is not a constructive plane to have play. That really messes with people. It also messes with all the stabilizers in your feet. So we pedal in exactly 170 millimeter radius circles or whatever your crank length is. And that barely moves, if at all, only the amount that the frame and crankset flex. But our ankles can move left and right. And our saddle height doesn't really change unless you're on a dropper post or unless you're on a modern post that has a lot of spring in it or movement in it on purpose. Like um, Canyon makes a seat post that moves quite a bit. Uh, Sintase makes a seat post that moves quite a bit. I think it's called a P6. So these devices will allow you to have some change in your saddle height. Some full suspension mountain bikes will change your saddle height and or saddle offset as the suspension sags, depending on the orientation of the shock or the pivot or the pivotless design. Bikes are complicated little buggers at times, so especially mountain bikes. And so the saddle height doesn't change um, all those little exceptions aside that I just listed. Unless you're riding an Allsop or an Ibis Bowtie. Sorry, I had to mention that because I just went to the Pro's Closet Museum last week and also and saw a whole bunch of their super cool bikes in their museum. If you ever get the chance to check it out, I recommend it. They've got some cool stuff there. So those exceptions aside, saddle height doesn't change. However, our pelvis is free to rock upon the perch of the saddle, depending again on the design of the saddle. If you have a very squared off design saddle with not a lot of padding, then you get less rock or less ability to drop each ilium or innominate to one side or the other. However, if you, uh, by innominate, I mean half of the pelvis. On the other hand, you, if you have a saddle that's very, we'll say, uh, saddle shaped like a horse saddle that is, and very rounded in the center or quite padded, then you get more of a chance to rock from side to side. 
So while the absolute height cannot change, there's actually quite a bit of movement that can happen in a particular plane. And this is part of what enables our concept of hip drop. So what I'm getting at is bikes do allow movement in various planes. They allow asymmetries in certain boxes, but they don't very much so in others. And I think this is one of the problems with bicycles. It's one of the reasons they spin up asymmetries. So I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, about the conditions in which asymmetries are spun up. Before we get there, I want to go over some of the general factors that can propagate asymmetries. These would include your riding posture, your bike fit, as we just mentioned, your daily body movement habits. So if you're a golfer or a tennis player or a squash player, or if you work at a grocery store, all these things will propagate an asymmetrical rotation of the torso, right? Uh, specifically, if you work at a grocery store as a checker, because when you are a checker, you have a very specific pattern of rotation of the torso to move all the items across the barcode scanner, right? Same as a golfer. Golfer is the most obvious example because in tennis, you do have a forehand and a backhand, so you do get some rotation to each side. Baseball, you swing the bat one way. Tennis, uh, you, you swing the racket both ways, although there is a difference between forehand and backhand, but golf, you swing it one way. So daily body habits, daily patterns of movement can influence your rotations. Uh, strength and movement training can also, of course, influence these patterns, in particular, if you are training very unconsciously. Because what you can do is add strength to a twisted or we'll say propagated spiral, right? Hydration and fueling habits can influence this, especially on the bike. One of the things that I was so evident that I learned in this dissection class was the difference between the quality of body tissues from different cadavers. We worked with four different cadavers in this class and it was real obvious which people had spent a life well hydrated and those who had not. Dry tissue is dry tissue. And at the risk of being graphic, I'll say that, um, some muscles that have been dehydrated for a long time and some fascial tissues that have been dehydrated for many, many years, uh, they have the characteristic of beef jerky. They're literally dried out muscle tissue. That's what it is. And you can see it clearly, uh, the quality of the tissue, the way the muscle moves through your fingers is completely different. So experience in this firsthand was pretty powerful. Hydration and fueling habits absolutely influence the quality of your tissue and dried out fascia is hard to work with. It's hard to change the, the direction of the fibers and the orientation, uh, the characteristics of the fibers. I mean, fascia is very strong in general, but it also, the term fascia encompasses all connective tissue. And so some of it is really quite can be quite pliable and quite elastic but it's got to be hydrated for that to be the case 
Uh, the last thing I want to put under general factors that can propagate asymmetries would include thought patterns. You're probably thinking, what are you talking about? To, there are a couple different ways to think about this. One is simply what kind of writing you're doing. Think about it in terms of the lens of consciousness. So if you are the type of writer who really is present in your body while you're writing, and you're attentive to the sensations of the body, and you're listening, and you are consciously occupying your movement patterns while you make speed on a bicycle, then there's sort of this double-edged sword with that. One is that at times, every little thing that happens can sort of bring your attention to that instance and that can take away from your flow state. But when things are going well, that attention can really bring about a synergistic experience that we might describe as a flow state. On the other hand, this level of internal focus, when it's abandoned or completely ignored, especially when the attention is brought to the external world, and in particular, the easy example is when it's magnified by the experience of a virtual reality situation, like riding on a trainer. This is the equivalent of cycling while taking painkillers. Because you're disconnecting from what the body is telling you. You're distracting yourself with a virtual digital environment so that you can entertain yourself to avoid the sensation of pain or discomfort that you might experience while riding, which is kind of the point. Part of the practice of athletics is to partition your attention and be able to sit in the cauldron. It's to be able to experience discomfort intentionally for long periods of time. That's part of what sport is about, is the intention to put yourself in an uncomfortable place and tolerate that pain for long periods. That's what endurance sports are about. So when we distract with too many headphones and too many virtual realities, then I would argue we're going against the soul of the sport to some degree. I would also offer that riding in a virtual environment will tend to spin up bad habits and bad habits propagate asymmetries. So I've said this on my pod before, but I mean, trainers are, they're basically evil. They are niggle magnifiers. If you want to screw yourself up or make an injury worse, just ride the trainer a lot. I'll stop there because I could keep going. I have more to say about trainers. I feel about trainers like I do about leaf blowers. In any case, I said I was going to stop. So, okay, those are some of the general factors that can propagate asymmetries. Next, I wanna unpack a bit of a course of action. What's our roadmap? How can we deal with this? Okay, I'm on the bike, I've got pain, I'm on the verge of quitting the sport, or I just really think that cycling sucks now because I can't get untwisted. So here's your roadmap on practical stuff. Uh, it's a bit ethereal at first, bear with me. I'll, I'll do my best to break this down into practical stuff, especially in episode three, I'm going to give you actual exercises. 
I'll touch on a few of those today, but for now we have to work on the concepts. And I promise the gap between two and three will not be anywhere near as long as it will was between one and two. So the first thing is simply the understanding that everyone has a propensity to rotate and you have to know your pattern of rotation, right? You have to know which way you spiral. Most of you are righties. So what does that mean? Well, it means that your rib cage and your torso are rotated to the right forward relative to our imaginary ear line or center line. So we have to understand that. It also means that you probably put more weight on the right side of your bars on the right on the right hand. It also probably means that when you pedal, because your right hip is forward, now I'll say because carefully, this is a chicken egg situation, it probably influences the center of generation of torque. So I'll unpack what that means. But for now, I'll just say that you most likely make more force with the knee on the right and with the hip on the left. Point number two, this rotation, this spiral is global, not local. That means that it involves your entire body. So note the first thing that I said when I was describing the spiral pattern is that bodies tend to work in spiral patterns, not hips. We feel it at the hips, right? Most of us feel it at the hips, I should say. Probably not all of us, but most people who walk through MyFit Studio Fundamentally, they feel it at the hips or the legs, they'll say. So it's like, ah, I feel like I'm sitting off one side of the saddle. That's a really common one. Another one is I just feel crooked, like one leg is more powerful than the other. The other leg is always futzing and moving and wiggling and the foot doesn't feel right. And it's always searching for stability. I get these kinds of descriptions, right? So it, we tend to localize this sensation of twist to the hips, but that's because we're, that's where we're trying to generate power. But the rotation, the spiral pattern is global. It literally is from your pinky toe to the top of your head. It's the entire body is rotating this way. We can see it in your standing posture. I can see it in your shoulders. I can see it in your rib cage. I can see it in the twist in your IT bands, in your kneecaps, in your feet, in the gait pattern, in the head carriage. The question is, where is the spiral out of control and where is it manageable? So when we're undergoing this entire Pygmalion project to fix ourselves and make ourselves perfect, I'm saying that with a slight tone of sarcasm, you probably picked up on that. We need to understand that we're really not trying to undo a spiral. That's like asking a mind not to think. We're not going to undo the spiral. We're not going to become non-spiraled. You are a spiral. You are, you're like a tigger. You're, you're a spring. That's what you are. You're a hairy bag of water shaped like a spring. Congratulations. So when you try to untigger a tigger, things go bad. So that's not the goal. The goal is to manage the spirals in a way that allows you to enjoy riding a bicycle. right? I'm going to say that again. It's really important. The goal is to manage your spiral pattern in a way that allows you to enjoy this thing that you love, which is riding a bike. That's the, that's the goal. That's the end point. Now manage implies that it's not a one-time fix because it's not. 
and manage also implies that it takes time to get there because it does. So buckle your seatbelt because this is not a, there's no, I'm not going to give you one exercise that's going to fix your twisted hips and no, you can't go to the chiropractor and just have him pop your back or crack your neck. That's not how this works because it's your fascial system and your nervous system, which is really, those are the same thing actually that have expressed this spiral. And the expression of this spiral is a synopsis. It is a total manifestation of your riding posture, your bike fit, your daily movement habits, your daily strength habits, your hydration and fueling habits, and your thought patterns. And even so much the thought patterns to the point at which you your lens of the world impacts the physical expression of your body. It's not an accident that you look the way you look. You are constantly manifesting and growing your body. Every cell in your body is replaced at regular intervals, every single cell. So you don't have a single cell in you that was the same that was here 30 years ago or 10 years ago. You are regrowing yourself all the time. So when you think about that for a moment, it's quite interesting. How else would the body grow other than being an expression of your soul living in this organic matter? There is no other outcome. So you are creating this body every minute of every day. It's a pretty powerful statement, actually, if you let it settle because it really reminds us how much authority we have over our own domain, right? So this rotation is global. It goes throughout the entire body. So in order to get our spiral under control, we have to work globally to some degree, right? So this is why to a, someone who simply wants an IT band stretch or attacks uh, a spiral pattern with a glute stretch or a glute knee to exercise, we're not going to necessarily get anywhere. That was a poorly constructed sentence. We're not going to get the goal. We're not going to get the end result that we're hoping for because when you understand that the entire body is rotated in a spiral and you're trying to change that spiral by strengthening glute meat on one side. Now we can see that that's not going to work. Right? Things that can influence the cause of the spiral pattern mechanically, that is in terms of bike fit. I'll go through this list quickly because I'm pretty sure I covered it in the first pod, but I want to make sure everybody's reminded of it. Um, the first one that's pretty common actually is the saddle's too high. When your saddle's too high, everybody tends to spiral more. So you've got to make sure your saddle is not too high. And it's quite common in my experience for people to have their saddle be too high. Far more common to have it be too high than too low. There are a lot of people who don't get that. A lot of people in the bike fit world don't get that. Saddle shape is too rounded when viewed from the rear, allowing the ischial tuberosities to fall off of each side, just as I described. 
Also, having a saddle with a really round shape smashing into your perineum doesn't feel great either or do wonders for your sex organs or your pelvic floor. Man or woman, doesn't matter. Cleats in the wrong place, either fore, after, side to side. Uh, cranks being too long or way too long. Those can both spin up that problem. Why? Because specifically when you hit maximum range of motion at the top of the stroke at maximum hip flexion, that is when your femur's coming up towards your rib cage, most people are a bit asymmetrical in their left to right hip flexion and or internal and external rotation. Or when you add all those three up for sure, just about everybody has some asymmetries. And so when you go to end range of motion, you're going to hit one of those ranges and that's going to cause everything to shift to that side to compensate for it. So it's quite common for us to see people pedaling at the top of the stroke, their knee kicks out at the very top. It sort of does this little, it's like a Y shape when you're looking at it from the frontal view. So if I'm watching an, a rider, if I'm facing them in the on when they're riding on the trainer, and I'm watching their knees track at the top, it'll kick out like this little Y, like it's going around the rib cage. That means they're negotiating the end range of motion on their hip joint. The femoral head is running into the top of the acetabulum most likely, or labrum, or the hip flexors are just super, super tight. Uh, bars too low could probably cause this problem too, because it's effectively the same thing as having your saddle um, as having your cranks too long. I'll say it that way. In this instance, it's effectively the same thing. Those are some of the mechanical causes I can think of that would spin up asymmetries. Um, bars too far away could do it too. Also, let's keep in mind that a few other things that can upregulate this spiral pattern to, to the point where it becomes problematic would include anytime you're training in an environment that camouflages bad technique, you're going to spin up asymmetries. So training on really flat roads, training with really heavy wheels, training in a lot of group rides and never doing long solo efforts by yourself riding on the trainer, riding on the trainer while in a virtual environment, be it Swift or Ruby or whatever. It's all the same. Riding when you're really overweight, right? For multiple reasons, that'll tend to spin up asymmetries. So what we're saying on some level is that Asymmetry and technique are antithetical to each other or orthogonal, you might say. When you are attentive to technique, specifically smoother pedaling under higher power, not just smooth pedaling, not just quick pedaling and not pedaling on a fixed gear. Fixed gears camouflage poor technique actually also. Well, there's sort of a weird, actually, I'll correct that statement. Let me refine that. Fixed gears, you've probably heard of riders in old school universes riding around on fixed gears during the winter to help them spin better. And there's some truth to that. It's pretty simple. A fixed gear will force you to pedal very, very quickly if you ride it outdoors, in particular over hilly terrain. Pedaling fast requires supple muscle. 
So from that perspective, especially when your cadence gets really fast, maybe over 120, 130, 140, 150 RPM, you've got to pedal with a lot of supple muscle to allow the pedals to pedal to go that quickly. And if you fight them too much, or if you fight them a lot, you'll fly off the bike or have serious problems. So there's a, there is a world where pedaling a fixed gear will create supple muscle. However, pedaling a fixed gear also will push you through the dead spot of a stroke. So when you pedal a fixed gear at a medium high RPM with medium high output or torque, you can be quite sloppy with the pedal stroke and ignore the dead spots quite a bit. And because the chain is driven by the forward rotation of the wheel, you will not incur the consequences of that dead spot. So it pushes you through, through the dead spot. So what I'm really have to say when I'm clarifying the statement, most of you probably don't even care is that fixed gears simultaneously develop quick, smooth muscle. They also make a bigger dead spot in your pedal stroke. Pardon me while I drink some sparkly water. Okay. So let's consider some of the biomechanical causes of this spiral pattern. We have to fully understand all the causes from all angles so that then we can attack it with a program that makes sense. Logic, science. What is mercury with chalk? There's your movie reference for the day. Somebody tell me where that's from. First person to hit me on the gram gets a t-shirt. There, I said it. So asymmetry and technique are antithetical to each other. That's an important note. I just want to make sure that I repeat that. Also, attention to riding posture will help offset symmetry. In some cases, more than others. So considering now the biomechanical causes of the spiral pattern. Sorry, I kind of went in a circle there. No pun intended. To understand the spiral pattern more, we have to look at the things that can cause it from a biomechanical lens. And fundamentally, these are lack of mobility in some of the joints or muscle tendon ligament relationships or fascial chains, we'll call them, which can be coupled with hypermobility in other in other places. So part of the first rule of the spiral is understand your spiral pattern. And the extension of that is to make the parts that are that have a lack of mobility more mobile and make the parts of your body that have too much mobility more stable. This is the most fundamental concept behind a corrective exercise program. And I think that even the more advanced people in the exercise world would still agree with that basic tenet. What I think a lot of discussion happens around is how to make it happen. And the reason I think it's so important to keep coming back to the concept that the spiral is global is because old school PT is really a very isolationist or um, reductionist way of doing things. 
So what we do is we look at muscles as individual units and we determine which muscle is not firing and we turn those muscles on, so to speak, with exercises. So this type of thinking is the way we think when we come up with an exercise like a monster walk, if you know what a monster walk is. It's when you stand with your feet pretty far apart, wider than shoulders width apart, and you put a band around each ankle or around one band around both ankles, I should say, the same band. And then you walk sideways, right? And this is an exercise to strengthen glute med and external hip rotators. Uh, glutes, glute med, etc. Glute min. And it's not a bad exercise. You know, as Paul Chuck says all the time, there's no such thing as a good exercise or a bad exercise. There is simply a correctly prescribed exercise or an incorrectly prescribed exercise. And monster walks have their place. However, in my experience, I think that there's a, there's a ceiling to performance you're going to get with that type of exercise. They only get you so far. So if your glute med has never seen the light of day and won't turn on, even if someone puts a gun to your head, then starting off with monster walks might be a great place to begin to help you connect with it and understand how it works and begin to feel it burn and do things like that. But getting a glute med to fire when you're climbing a hill out of the saddle is a different issue altogether. And that's the million dollar question. How do we improve your function while you're riding? Because we may be able to improve your function doing a monster walk or doing other cerebrally obtuse activities in a gym with a bunch of random objects, but that doesn't necessarily mean you ride your bike any faster or that your asymmetry goes away on the bike or not goes away, but is improved to the point where you can begin to have a better relationship with your bicycle. So, we have to go back to lack of mobility to understand what's going on. So when we have our right-sided spiral, that is our right shoulder is rotated forward and our right hip is rotated forward, which means down on the bike. What we have is a restriction of immobility. Most likely, I would say for most people, would be in the anterior aspect of the right hip and the posterior aspect of the left hip. So let me unpack that just a bit. What that probably means is the hip flexors in the right side, the psoas and the rectus femoris, the, all the muscles right around your ASIS or your anterior superior, superior iliac spine, otherwise known as your front hip bone, those muscles are probably pretty tight on the right side. And your right quad probably is too. And on the left side of the body, we probably have some tightness in the left glute and the left lower back. So we have to mobilize these aspects of the hips. But we also need to think globally. And when we have a posterior hip capsule that is tight, that is in this case, in my example, I'm using this as the example because it's the most common outcome that I see, which is a right-oriented spiral. Or if we were looking down from the top, that would be a counterclockwise spiral. So if you were a hummingbird looking down on a person and you placed a clock on their head, a clock face on top of their head, 
they would be rotating counterclockwise. Hopefully everyone can see that. So if you have a counterclockwise or right-facing spiral pattern, is what, how I would phrase that, then the left side posterior hip is going to be tight. And as a general rule, whenever we have a hip that's tight, we have the contralateral shoulder that's also tight. So that probably means the right shoulder is a little tighter. And some of that tightness is probably because you support more of your torso weight on the right side shoulder. You carry more of your weight on that side. That's the most common outcome. And it also means that if we were to evaluate the ability for your neck or your head to look right or left, you would have more restriction when you try to look with your head over your right shoulder than you would with your left shoulder. So if this is the case, then we see this spiral heading up the body. The tight side of the spiral goes from the right neck through the right shoulder and down to the left hip. Now the question is, does it go to the right inner leg or the left inner leg or the left outer leg? And I don't know the answer to that at the moment. You have to explore that. Maybe it's non, what's the word I'm looking for? Maybe it's non-consequential. Right? Because remember, the, the spiral pattern is global, but it doesn't mean that you'll have problems up and down the entire spiral. What it means is the pattern will continue. So when we're working on offsetting the pattern, we understand where the tight parts are and we understand where the hypermobile parts are, or maybe not hypermobile, but the more mobile parts are, and we stabilize those parts and then we mobilize the tight parts and we do it globally. And we do it globally with the understanding that in particular when we stretch or mobilize tissue, if we do it all the way from tip to toe, when we do this, the important parts in the middle that are tightest will get the work that needs to be done. It's like wringing out a towel by grabbing the very ends and then having the water drip out of the part that's wettest. I don't know if that's the clearest analogy, but that's the one that comes to mind at the moment. So, another question that's a good one to talk about in our third podcast is how you would offset this spiral pattern globally. And one way that I'll just give you as a nugget to play with right now is a scorpion stretch. That can at least get part of the way there. Another way is with Eldoas. Another way is with Qigong or Tai Chi, which are some of the best movement patterns I know of that globally stretch the fascial system dynamically, meaning not passively, not this isn't a 30 second or 45 second or two minute hold. What we wanna do is move dynamically, meaning we want to move to end range and touch it and then move away from it and go the other way and then come back to it. This is, I think, most of the time, the best way to work the fascial system and get actual results. Okay, 
So that's the first cause of the excessive spiral pattern from a biomechanical perspective that we have to address, It's which is mobility. You have to find the places that are tight. And this is really not rocket science. Uh, if you're familiar with Kit Laughlin, he's an Australian guy who runs a website called stretchtherapy.net. He's got a ton of free content on his site. I refer clients to his work from time to time when I do fitting. And he's just a good guy to study if you want to learn how to stretch a particular muscle. He's just got really essential fundamental knowledge on his site and he shares it for free. So we are grateful for this resource and knowledge that he brings us. And Kit talks about a really important concept that I've explained to many of my clients during a fit session, which is that in grade school, at least in the United States, we are all taught this basic concept that you stretch to avoid injury. So you're taught that before you go play soccer or basketball or flag football or whatever you're doing in fourth grade, you need to stretch your muscles. And you do this to avoid getting injured. And this paints a picture in our heads of a bell curve. So let's imagine that we take a thousand people and we give them a 10 or 20 point flexibility test. And in that test, we give them a flexibility profile and that ranks them on this bell curve. And on one end of the bell curve, we have people who are super inflexible. We call this house brick. And on the other side of the curve, we have people who are super flexible and we call them Gumby. And then in the middle, we have most humans. Most people are not house bricks and they're not Gumbies. And we assume that Gumby gets the least amount of injury and house brick gets the most. That's what this ideology has programmed into us, that if you stretch, you won't get injured. So therefore, if you do not stretch, or if you're really house bricky or Fred, Fred Flintstone-y, I imagine Fred Flintstone is not very flexible, then you'll get a lot of injuries. But in actuality, when we overlay the occurrence of injuries on top of this bell curve, what we find is there's no correlation between house brick and Gumby and injury rate. What there is a correlation of is asymmetries in mobility within a person. And the greater the asymmetry is, the more likely it is you will get injured. So there you have it. If you have a big asymmetry in your left to right internal or external hip rotation, a really large one, then the chances of you getting injured are quite high, statistically speaking. Same with shoulders, same with, well, just about anything we can measure in terms of bilateral joints. Oh, excuse me. It's late here. That was a yawn. So the next thing I want to cover is the critical imbalance of tonic and phasic muscles. And I talk quite about this in my fit sessions with people, clients, athletes, cyclists. It's a really important concept. So I'll review it here. Phasic muscles, we can consider to be prime movers, the big muscles, things like glutes and quads and biceps. They're muscles that people like to look at on Instagram. These are phasic muscles. The other muscles that we need to consider are tonic muscles. These are generally slow twitch. Generally speaking, they're a little more proximal, meaning they are 
usually deeper in the body, although not always, and they're usually smaller muscles. They're more postural muscles or stabilizing muscles. This is what makes up the tonic muscle system. And when we do exercise that is functional exercise, we train both these muscle systems at the same time. This is crucial. So when you do a back squat, you load up the bar with a bunch of weight and then you put the weight on your back and then you squat. And when you squat down, you have to balance the bar in all different planes because you're in the field of gravity. Unless you're doing squats on the moon or in the ocean, gravity is just always there. So, well, it's still there in the ocean too, just less because of the pressure of the water. Anyway, uh, it's still there on the moon as well, just less because the moon. So when we squat down on earth with our bar loaded up with weight and we see the bar drop to one side or the other, we look in the mirror and we correct that or we feel it dropping to one side or the other and we push harder with the other side. If our bar path sucks and we start to come too far forward, we feel our center of gravity come out over our toes and we realize that we're going to tip forward. So we correct that by pushing back a little bit so that the bar path stays over our feet, etc. So when we lift weight with free weights, we are working both the phasic and tonic muscle systems at the same time. And we're training them together concurrently. And we have to. And to some degree, everyone is limited by the strength of their tonic system working in conjunction with and harmony with the phasic system at the same time to lift the weight. That's why you lift less weight back squatting than you do when you load up a leg sled. Now, a leg sled only works the phasic muscles. That is, there's no balance required. You can smash the plate from all sorts of weird angles. And as long as you produce more force than is needed to move the weight, you'll move it because it, the weight is being driven on tracks that are on these big, you know, near frictionless bearings and whatever. So you can have horrible form on a weight press, push harder with one leg than the other and still get the weight off the ground, right? So that's the concept. And a really critical extension of this concept is the idea that when we train with machines, we downregulate training of the tonic muscle system and upregulate training of the phasic muscle system. This is what causes imbalances. Because when we train those two muscle systems together, what happens is we are able to make force in a way that has guidance. It has stabilization. It has the support of the tonic muscle system. And here's the problem. Bicycles are machines. So we are already downregulating our tonic system when we ride bikes. So another way to think about that is supporting or stabilizing musculature is required to guide our phasic muscles on the bike. Our prime movers, our glutes and quads and hamstrings are, well, hamstrings, yeah, a little bit complicated topic perhaps, but we'll say quads and glutes, those prime movers require stabilizing muscles like pectineus to help guide them in their path. But those muscles are not worked effectively riding the bike. So every time you ride your bike, the delta between those two muscle groups grows. 
that's the second big excessive cause of the excessive spiral pattern. The third is simply a lack of core, right? And by core, we mean anything between the knees and the shoulders, really. Although that's one definition I heard recently. I don't know if I even agree with that because I would argue you have core muscles even in your feet. You could argue that tibialis anterior is a core muscle, I think. Posterior tib is definitely a core muscle. In any case, more proximal muscles. Probably some debate that could happen there. And I'm probably going to get myself in trouble by saying that. That's okay. Someone can come and correct me. So fundamentally, when we are lacking core, in a general sense, we're going to spin up our asymmetries. So we have to have a core exercise program that really allows us to execute movement distally. That is with the limbs effectively, transmitting force effectively through the limbs. That's what we want to do when we ride a bike. We want to generate a lot of force at the pedal if you want to ride fast. And then number four is the origin of the torque or the concentration of force, we might say. So this comes down to hip-driven versus knee-driven torque centers. In my opinion, the optimal way for most of the riding to happen is for us to drive from the hip. The center of the hip is the most sustainable place for us to drive the pedal. Now, in order to drive the pedal from the hip, that means you need to activate glutes. The glute is the biggest hip extensor in the body, and it should definitely be used to pedal a bike. There are a lot of challenges and obstacles in the way from that, one of which is that we put an axis of rotation near the ball of the foot, which down-regulates glute recruitment. So what I'm saying there is that it's easier to drive through the heel when your heel contacts the ground, but on a bike, our heel is sort of floating because of the fact that we clip into pedals and the pedal axle is somewhere near the ball of the foot, right? See the problem? So ideally we would drive from the hips on each side, but as I mentioned earlier, when we have our spiral pattern, and when we're our hummingbird and we're looking at our counterclockwise spiral pattern, which means that the right hip and shoulder are rotated forward, what happens is we're in a biomechanical position, which is advantageous towards driving with more torque generated from the knee. And I think this is probably the critical moment when most people either start to have problems with their spiral pattern or when they start to notice injuries, dysfunction, is when the torque center moves from the hip on the right side forward to the knee. Because then you end up in a situation where you're driving from the left hip and the right knee. And this is obviously problematic. When this happens, you're, you're never going to feel like you're even on the bike or like the legs are working the same. And it's hard to sort of feel that. 
until you really tune into it. And then once you tune into it, once you're aware of it, it can become quite eye-opening and illuminating. So as the right hip comes forward on the saddle, you're going to lose the lever arm to drive early in the power phase with glute, and you're going to start relying more on quad. So the trick number one, the practical tip that I can offer to offsetting the spiral pattern is not allowing the right hip to come forward towards the bars. Now, sometimes that's easier said than done. Depends on how tight your fascial system is. I've had riders who have literally tried to hold their butt in the right place on the saddle and they just can't do it. Within three pedal strokes, they're back to where they were. When that happens, that tells us your fascial system, your, uh, I shouldn't say fascial system. That's a poor way to describe it. The tension in the fascia is holding you in that position. And the reason it's holding you there is because you've been there for a long time and the fascia has adapted to that position. So whenever something takes a long time to build, you don't disassemble it in one night, right? You gained 40 pounds of weight, you don't take it off in four days takes time to take that weight off. You spent years putting it on, you're going to spend a long time getting it off, maybe years. The same thing is true of a fascial movement pattern. If your hips are twisted so the right side is forward or anterior towards the bars, you're not going to be able to just put yourself back in the saddle, most likely, and plant your butt so that that ischial tuberosity is in the same place as the left one you're still going to feel like you're hanging off the right side of that bike. So you've got to do your work and begin to mobilize the tissue in the hips, not just in the sagittal plane, but in the other planes as well, the transverse and frontal plane. So this is the part where I told you it was a bit complicated. I'm, maybe you've understood the concepts to this point and you're waiting with anticipation for me to give you the magic bullet, but there's, there's no magic bullet here. There's no easy solution to this problem. I'm sorry. It comes down to postural awareness on the bike and time doing mobility drills to open the posterior aspects of both hips, but most likely the front side of the right hip and the back side of the left hip to get you to the point where you can stand squarely and have that right hip high and back and ride the bike and then develop the stability to keep that hip from dropping. So you want a quick test to confirm that this happens in the real world, that you're not just imagining things and that you can't just stretch your way out of it. I'll give you one of those. I'll give you two. Uh, one we'll call hip drops in circles to uh, which would progress to hip airplanes. And then the second one, well, I'll get to that in a minute. So hip drops, what you're going to do is stand with your left foot on a step. You can use the bottom step in your staircase of your house. So you're going to stand with your hips level but your right foot is going to be floating in the air because it's hanging over the step 
You're going to put your hands on the tops of your hips. That's your iliac crests, so the top of your hip bones. And ideally, you've got a sliding glass door, a mirror, or something you can look in so you can see this visually. But you want to see when your hips are level. And then you're going to start by just dropping that right hip down as far as it'll go towards the floor. You're going to want a little bit of bend in your left knee. Just a little bit. Like five degrees. And then you're going to take that right hip and hike it all the way up towards the ceiling as high as it'll go. And you might need um, a friend or a spouse or a girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. Someone with... Uh, who can hold you a little accountable to tell you how high and how low that hip can go. I don't mean give you the number of centimeters. What I mean is just watch you do it and then watch you switch sides. And what you're going to notice internally is, do you have a big difference in the tension from left to right? That is, do you feel a big sense of pull, especially across the sacrum? from left to right, or maybe you feel it in the crease of your hip. Could be down by your uh, crotch. It could be the crease of your hip more up towards the top of the hip. It could also be in your lower back musculature. You could feel it in any of these places, like in your QL or your spinal erector. So when you hike and drop each hip, you're going to start with one side, start with the left foot on the step and drop the right hip down and then go all the way up and all the way down and all the way up. Give it about eight reps, nice and slow and controlled. Then go to the other side and compare the differences internally in your own sensations and then externally from your compatriot, your accountability buddy to tell you how, what the range of motion was on each hip. That's a good clue to start off with. Which hip is tighter? Which hip is locked up? Which hip has a better range of motion? So you're working the range of motion and you're also working the stabilizers of the hip at the same time. So this is a good exercise. It's both diagnostic and it is also conditional or conditioning. You're working the glute med, the quadrilus lumborum, and the adductors as you do this exercise. Then you can progress this to hip circles. So now you want to imagine that you're trying to make a giant circle with a hip that is hanging off the step. So you can do eight circles forward and eight circles backwards. You're trying to make the biggest circle you can with the top, the point at the top of your hip. So the diameter of that circle might be eight or 12 inches, something like that. If you've got really tight hips or if your muscles aren't very strong on the other side, remember it's the opposite hip, the, the hip that is on the step that's going to be guiding this exercise, then you might not be able to make very big circles. At some point I'll do a video with this and show you what this means, but um, if you can listen to directions and follow them, you should be able to do this no problem. I believe in you. I know you can follow directions. It's amazing to me how many people just want to watch the video these days. But I'd like you to actually listen to my words and see if you can make your body do the things that I'm describing. Now, if my directions suck, that's on me. But I think they're okay. So then we would progress to hip circles. And you could use something like a dining room table to hold on to at first. 
So you want to go into like a Romanian deadlift position. So what that means is you're going to stand on one leg again with a slight bend in the knee, about five degrees. And then you're going to make a tabletop position with your arms out, grabbing that dining room table. And then your other leg is going to go straight behind you. You're going to hold it until it's horizontal, ideally. Again, you might need a buddy to remind you what horizontal feels like because it's hard to know sometimes when you're kicking your leg behind you. Maybe not something you're used to feeling. And then you can keep your hips in plane with your shoulders. And then you're going to drop, let's say you're on your left leg, you're going to drop your right hip down towards the ground, keeping your hip and shoulders in plane. So that means your right shoulder is also going to drop down towards the ground. So that would be duplicating the pattern of rotation that you have in your spiral. But then you're going to offset it by rotating the right hip up above horizontal and you're going to keep your shoulders in plane with that hip now this is the regressed version of the exercise when you get strong you can hold your arms not on a table but out in a t-shape and you can do that with each side left and right legs and see if there's a big difference this is a pretty advanced exercise not everyone will be able to do this but I really like it because it strengthens the foot, the ankle, the lower leg, the hamstrings. It works a lot of muscles all the way up the chain simultaneously in a closed chain fashion that is you're standing on solid ground. And it really drives home the stability of that hip. So, that those exercises, the hip drops, hip circles, and hip airplanes are a good progression to see how capable you are of controlling your, your pelvis while you're on one leg, which replicates in some ways the workload of the bicycle. Because of course, cycling is unilateral. You pedal with one leg at a time. Now, another way to look at this is a split stance deadlift. And this exercise is also a little bit technical, but I'll do my best to describe it. And then you'll do your best to actually do it. You will definitely want a mirror for this. If you're doing it in your house or your living room, you can do this uh, facing a, a sliding glass door or something like that that's reflective. Because you're going to absolutely have to see the alignment of your pelvis and your torso during this exercise. And what you're going to need is a barbell. The barbell doesn't have to be loaded up with a bunch of weight. In fact, it shouldn't be loaded up with too much weight. And you're going to use a simple split stance for this exercise. So if you don't know what a split stance deadlift is, you might go look it up on the YouTubes. But it's like a normal deadlift. But as you might imagine, your stance is split. So you have 90% of your weight on one leg and you're going to kick back the other leg just behind you. Now, most people will put the back leg too far back. We want to put it just far enough back so you can be on your toes and not so far that when you come up to the top position of the deadlift, that is the top of the rep, that you can't have your hips all the way forward in neutral. We want your hips to be all the way forward in neutral. So what that means is your back foot's only going to be maybe the toes are going to be maybe six inches behind the heel at most. 
and you're going to make a box with your feet, meaning the width of your feet is going to be about shoulder width and the toes are going to be about shoulder width apart front to back approximately, which would be, as I said, about six inches maximum from the front heel to the back toes. And your back foot is going to have the heel off the ground, toes on the ground, heel off the ground. People get really confused by that cue sometimes. I say heel off the ground and they want to keep their whole foot off the ground. Toes are on the ground, heels off the ground. So 90% of your weight's in your front foot and you're going to do a simple deadlift. You're going to pull the bar from the ground, keeping it close to your shin and then close to your knee and close to your thigh and all the way up to your hips. Now the key to this exercise is to watch as you descend and ascend in each rep. What does your hip do? The loaded leg, the front leg, especially if it's the right leg, will usually want to kick to one side or the other pretty dramatically. And the hip will kick to the side, we'll say. It'll move either to the left or the right. And this is a quick and easy indicator that your hip stability is not very solid, potentially, on the bike. Normally, when I see someone do a split stance deadlift, if they've got excessive hip drop, that hip will not be stable in this split stance position. So, just like with the hip circles, this exercise is both diagnostic and also an exercise we can use to condition you. You probably notice that somebody who can deadlift a fair amount of weight with two legs, if they've got a solid amount of hip instability or asymmetry, when they go to a split stance, their weight goes way down, way down. And it becomes a whole different exercise. It also becomes quite difficult to drive through the heel on the side where you have the hip drop or rotation, in my experience. Why? Here's why. This goes back to our knees versus hips oriented torque centers. The deadlift is an exercise that when it's properly done, you drive through the hips. But if your pattern is to drive through the left hip and the right knee, that means in the split stance deadlift, you're going to be much stronger, much stronger with the left leg than you are with the right leg. So we got to get you driving through that right hip. And if you've been riding a bike for a long time and you're really heavily dependent on that right knee pattern, then when you go to do that split stance, that right hip is just going to buckle. That's really what's happening when you see that hip dive to the side. The hip is buckling because it doesn't have the stability to handle that load. That's what I got. Those are two good exercises to start to unpack this. I will give you another episode with a lot more detail and a lot more progression on exercises on how to handle this, including some mobility drills and all sorts of bits and bobs. But in the meantime, hopefully I've given you a lot to think about and start to dig into on your own cycling asymmetries. For those of you who are frustrated and well, discontent with your cycling, stick with it because it is definitely possible to make significant progress 
in your own patterns of asymmetry and begin to enjoy bicycling again, that thing that we love to do. I hope you find this podcast helpful and not too rambly. I did my best to be concise, but it's a lot of dense material. So um, yeah, hopefully you weren't all falling asleep and I wasn't up here asking where Ferris Bueller was. That's what I got. Thanks everyone. Uh, thank you for supporting the podcast and listening. Thank you for supporting my supporters, uh, namely Enduro Bearings. Also stay tuned for some updates to my website in the near future. I'm going to do my best to update my web store so I can continue to give you the products that I use myself and believe in. And hopefully you'll find great joy from all those things. Thanks for listening. I look forward to recording episode three. Take care, everybody. Ride consciously. Pedal quickly. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear, to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. 
Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.